Our New Testament responsive reading, as it is printed in your bulletins, comes from Luke chapter 1. We're going to be reading Luke 1, verses 26 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then from the Gospel according to John and John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 14. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and and truth. This is the word of the Lord. As always, before we open God's word to see, to study, to learn, to hear, let's pray and ask the Father to teach us. 
We do this every week, but there's a re and there's a reason. Be reminded that it's not John Sartell that is going to teach you in a way that will reach to the core of your being, that will either change you for the first time or continue the change that God began when he changed you with his Holy Spirit. I can't do that. No man who stands behind this desk can do that. And this is a way each week that we ask the Father to teach us, remembering that anything we learn and hear, any change that takes place in us, is through His voice, through His teaching. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is not just religious rhetoric. It's not some kind of rhetoric used by preachers to deflect any praise. It's just truth. It's just truth. That's what it is. And so let's pray and ask him to teach us. Pray with me. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests this morning, as always at this point in our service, praying for the world around us. You've called each one of us in Christ to be a priest, and we're a congregation. You've said that your people are a congregation of priests. And just as we've been out in the world this week, praying that we would be salt and light out there, that somehow people would see the gospel in us, would see Christ in us. So we come now before you, before your throne, before all the courts of heaven, and we bow and we ask for those around us. Thank you, Father, for answered prayer. We thank you, Father, that John Warren is here this morning. Thank you for the prayers you answered and sparing his life and providing surgery and bringing him through that surgery. And we pray that you would continue to bring healing to him. Our Father, we pray for Janice and C.D. Kilpatrick. Bless C.D., Father. Cause him to remember the gospel. And give blessing to Janice. In her love and her patience, I pray that, Father, she'll be an encouragement to C.D. and that you will encourage her. We pray for John Albritton, that you would ease his pain and continue to heal his body. For John Rowan, prepare him, Father, for this surgery. We pray that you would bring him through that surgery safely, that it would do what it's designed to do. We pray for Joan Schaefer, that you would give the doctors wisdom to understand knowledge to understand what needs to be done. We pray that you'd bless David Mattingly, Father, continue to restore him. Father, continue to strengthen his body. We pray that you would give him years yet upon this earth. We pray for Eileen Wood as she goes to Cleveland Clinic this week. Oh, Father, give the doctors their special interest in this case. 
We pray that they will bring resolve and healing to this that has been so hard physically on her. We pray for Donna McManus that you would strengthen her that she would be able to have this surgery. We pray for Phil and Sally Halley that you would give Sally strength for these days. Continue to improve Phil, Father. Bring even more movement to his limbs. Now we remember, Father, that there's people all around us that are indeed in this congregation this morning. There's marriages that need healing. There's individuals that are hurting financially or emotionally. You know all of those. And we lay them before you right now. Oh, Father, may this be a place where your people find comfort and where your people find healing. And now as we open your word, our Father, we pray that you would teach us. Cause us to hear your voice in our hearts. Awaken us to the power of the gospel, to the power of the incarnation. We pray that when we leave here in a few minutes that we will know you have spoken. Oh, Father, change us. Maybe some of us for the first time. We pray for the glory of Christ. And in his name, amen. In search of Christmas. This Christmas of 2023, our secular culture finds itself in an anomaly. What is that anomaly? Well, we live in a secular society, a society that finds itself at odds with God, with his word, with a society that is at odds with the very idea of anything supernatural. So how does a secular culture that denies the existence of the supernatural celebrate the birth of Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man? That's the anomaly. How can they do that? How can a secular world celebrate the miraculous virgin birth? How does a secular world celebrate the appearance of that angel to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds? How does a secular world celebrate a man who claimed to be deity? How does a sec secular world celebrate his proven miracles? How does a secular world celebrate a man who claimed to have come from heaven? They don't believe in such things. The supernatural. 
Yet, once a year, this secular culture spends weeks in preparing, spends large amounts of money, and writes heartwarming stories about love and children and family in the celebration of the largest festival of the year. And what's that, what's that festival called? Christmas. Christmas. C-H-R-I-S-T. Christmas. Well, they do make a feeble effort to change the name. They want everyone to say happy holidays, but they can't get away from it even then. Where did the word holiday come from? It's quite plain. The etymology of the word holiday is easily seen. It began with the term holy days. Holidays, holy days. Holy days set aside to remember God's goodness like we've just done with Thanksgiving. Holy days to celebrate the birth of Christ, the Son of Man, and the Son of God. By 350 A.D., in fact, it was in Rome in 336 that Christmas was first celebrated on December the 25th. Set aside especially by the Roman ruler Constantine to remember the birth of Jesus. Not to remember the winter solstice, not to remember the birth of Saturn, the Roman God, but to celebrate the birth of Christ. A thousand years ago, the word Christmas began to be used. Christ's Mass. So what does a secular culture do with this anomaly? They're in a conundrum. The Nazis, they tried to change the narrative of Christmas in Germany to point toward the super Aryan race, super race of Aryans. The Marxists of Russia and China were far more radical. They realized that the claims of Jesus, his supernatural birth, his doctrines were contradictory to their secular and godless effort to create a new world order. So they resolved to literally crush, destroy, and annihilate any worship or celebration centered on God and Jesus, and that included Christmas. It just had to cease to exist. Now that is the anomaly in which our own secular culture is living in December of 2023. It's been their conundrum every Christmas and again this Christmas. They are in search of a Christmas 
without God. An incarnation, they're in search of an incarnation, or excuse me, in search of a Christmas without an incarnation. In search of a Christmas without the claims of Jesus to be the Son of God and Son of Man. They're in search of a Christmas without angels, without an atoning cross, without a resurrection. Here is the terrific irony that you need to share, that we need to share with our secular friends. If there was no virgin birth, if there were no incarnation, if Jesus was not the Son of God and Son of Man, if he did not die an atoning death, if he did not walk out of that grave, then there would not be this gigantic holiday we call Christmas. It wouldn't be here because Jesus, see, you remember the, the phrase that was used? I haven't seen it in a long time now, but it just became a cliche. He's the reason for the season. That's the truth. There is no Christmas. It would not have been in 336 A.D. It wouldn't have been set aside unless that had happened. His incarnation, his claims, his miracles, his death and resurrection changed history. They make up the greatest event in this world since creation. The incarnation, the life of Jesus, turned this world upside down. That's why his birth is remembered. The gigantic impact it had. So, why do we as Christians need to keep returning to the details of the incarnation? Why? Why this message this morning? We need to be reminded our children need to be taught and reminded that these are non-negotiable truths about Jesus and his gospel. Non-negotiable truths about his identity and work. And I have a question for you. Where else will they learn this? Are they going to learn it from our secular culture? Tell me where they will learn it in our secular culture. If we don't teach it, folks, it won't be taught. And that begins in the home, and it begins in the church. The celebration of Advent throws the supernatural into the secular public arena. That's what Luke was doing. When Luke wrote his gospel, he was in this unbelieving world. And he threw it down. He didn't qualify it. He said, this is what happened. It throws the supernatural into the public arena, whether we're in Memphis or New York, whether we're in Seattle or Miami, whether we're in the first century or the 21st century. So, as our secular cultures in search of a Christmas that they're trying to reinvent to suit their own desires, we must make sure 
we understand once more the non-negotiable truths of the incarnation. For without these truths, there's no Christmas. Without Christ, there's no Christmas. So, how do we do that? Look at the passage before us this morning in Luke and John and see that the birth of Jesus involved the supernatural. Now, that's plain enough. This point, we do not need to lengthen. The birth of Jesus involved the supernatural. Look at Luke 1, 26 and 27. In the sixth month, that's the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth with John the Baptist. In the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So notice this angel shows that's supernatural. Sent from God, that's that's the supernatural. One cannot speak of the birth of Jesus without referring to the supernatural. Just saying that an angel appeared, that invokes the supernatural. But even the message of the angel, not just his existence, not just his appearance, but his message was filled with the supernatural. Look at Luke 1, 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, after the angel told her, you'll conceive in your womb, the maid, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. <clears throat> Mary herself asked the crucial question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel's answer left no doubt. This will be a miraculous conception. It will be a supernatural conception. Now that's Luke's version. He throws the supernatural into the secular public arena. John, in his record, we've seen this over and over again, he took a different approach. He didn't speak about Mary and the angel or Joseph or the shepherds or the angels. He simply described. He looked. He knew. Luke had already written. Matthew had already been written. They told the story. And he was saying, this is what the story means. This is what was happening in that history. He says, in the beginning... This is what God was doing with that supernatural conception. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Goes back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. But then he adds in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. This creating God became flesh. He invaded his creation. The birth of Jesus involved the supernatural. You can't get away from it. Our, secondly, I want you to see in this passage 
that our spiritual rebirth involves the supernatural. Look at John 1, 11 and 13, 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now mark it down. He gave the right to become the children of God, those who believed. Is that you? And then he describes it this way. Who were born. These people were born. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. His chief subject was a supernatural incarnate birth of the Son of God. That's his main topic. But he also spoke of the supernatural rebirth of sinners like us. That's only a few paragraphs later, looking at the Greek. At the beginning of chapter 3, that John records the first extensive conversation of Jesus about this rebirth. He goes back to John 1, verses 11 to 13, and he talks to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who had come to talk to him. He talks to him about being born again. Look at John 3, 1 through 5. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know your teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water, that is a physical birth, and the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, we usually let John 3, where he talks to Nicodemus this way about being born again, we let it stand alone. This, This just comes out of nowhere. People, it is inextricably entwined with that first chapter. He talks about the main subject, the incarnation of the Son of God. He comes in the flesh, and then he talks about how people who believe are born again, are born not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 3 is inextricably tied to that. Nicodemus was a leader among the Pharisees, a very strict religious group. He was very powerful, very wealthy. He was the epitome of a man who believed he could be saved by his own works, by what he did. He believed if a man reformed his life Outwardly, by the law of God, he would be saved. Nicodemus knew nothing, nothing of a supernatural inward transformation wrought by the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament had talked about it, but he didn't get it. 
He only knew of an outward reformation that he himself was trying to accomplish. Jesus told Nicodemus he was in need of an inward transformation, a rebirth wrought by the Holy Spirit. A Nicodemus knocked on my door years ago, in the late 70s, on an early on a Monday morning. He was a banker. He had called me the night before and asked if he could come by my home early Monday on his way to work. He had been a longtime member of a very liberal Presbyterian church, but he had been sitting in the pews of Independent for just a few weeks and was seriously disturbed. He was, I think he was hearing the gospel for the first time in his life. The preaching he had heard for decades had told him to be a good man and he would be all right with God. I knew his former minister, I knew his former minister didn't believe in the deity of Christ, didn't believe in the incarnation, didn't believe in the atoning death of Christ, didn't believe this man needed a savior. He sat down in my den, he was a man of, that always was direct, very direct. He sat down in the den, he looked at me and the first thing he says, where did you get the idea that we must be born again and what does that mean? <laughs> I, had to, I had to work hard to keep from laughing. I read, before I read him the story of Nicodemus in John 3, I read him from John 1, the passage we read. He gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then I read the account of Jesus and Nicodemus. He was so much like Nicodemus. He, he was a Presbyterian. This banker was a Presbyterian elder. Yet like a Nicodemus, he knew nothing of his need to be supernaturally reborn. That morning I thought of the exchange between Nicodemus and Jesus. Look at it, John 3, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? Are you a Presbyterian elder? And you do not understand these things? Let me ask you a question. In John 1 and 3, is the new birth that is described something that you do or something God does? It's quite plain. There's no way around it. It's a transformation of your inner being supernaturally wrought by the Holy Spirit. So John moved easily from the supernatural birth of Jesus to our own supernatural rebirth. The birth of Jesus involved the supernatural. Our spiritual rebirth involves the supernatural. Thirdly, the supernatural birth of the incarnation explains the extraordinary miracles of Christ. Look at John 3, 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For, we know you've come from God. Why do we know that? For no one can do these signs. He didn't say miracles. He said signs. He understood that these miracles were signs about Jesus. No one could do these signs. 
No one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. If you're standing there, you want to look at Nicodemus and say, you think? Really? No other man we've ever known in the history of mankind could make the blind to see just by telling them to see, just by command, by fiat. No one else could walk up to a man who was paralyzed and say, walk, and the man walked. That could speak and stop storms. That could speak and raise the dead. Folks, the incredible words of John 1 are proven. That's what John said. That's what John was doing in the first chapter. He said, this is who Jesus is, and here's proof of it. Why did he write his book? So that you know, may know this word who became flesh, this Jesus, is the Son of God. We've seen it over and over and over again. That's why he wrote the book. So he says who he is in the first chapter and for the rest of the book. He says, now look at what he does. It proves. The rest of the book proves the truth of chapter 1. When my college professor, my Western, my Western Civ professor, would say to me, John, how can you believe in the miracles of Jesus? I would always answer in the same way, with the same answer. But he kept asking the question, and I wouldn't change my answer. I would always reply, Dr. Clayton, if he is indeed God, what would you expect him to do? If there were no miracles and Jesus claimed to be God, you would say to me, well, John, where are his miracles? Why didn't he prove he was God? Why didn't he do something? The birth of Jesus involved the supernatural. Our spiritual rebirth involves the supernatural. The supernatural birth of the, inc of the incarnation explains the extraordinary miracles of Christ. Fourthly, again, we enter the picture. Fourthly, the supernatural rebirth of Christians explains our lives. We say we've been born again, we've been changed. Well, our lives will prove that, just like Jesus' life proved who he was. Our lives will prove who we are. Just pick any book in the New Testament, pick any page in the New Testament, and you're going to see this truth. After a person knows Jesus, meets Jesus, after a person is born again, he will live a different life. His life will be just, it's different. It's plainly stated through the entire New Testament. Jesus said what in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, your lives will be salt and light out in the world because of me, because of your relationship with me. Your life is going to be salt and light. It wasn't that way before you were born again. Why do we live the way we live? Because we've been born again. Because we've encountered the supernatural. Paul, in Galatians, in Ephesians, says that the world, you, 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 you understand the life of the, that the world lives by understanding that they live following the desires of their sinful nature. What they want to do. He says Christians in the power of the Holy Spirit live in the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells them. He draws this contrast 
He says, here's the fruit that living, here's the fruit that living, following the desires of your sinful nature, here's the fruit that will be born. Here's the fruit that will be in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's a difference. Now, you can't look at this, people, and say, well, that's for super Christians. No, I'm not talking about super Christians. Any Christian. If you are a Christian this morning, there's two facts about your life that you cannot contradict without contradicting God himself, without contradicting Scripture. The first fact is that you were changed by the Holy Spirit. You could not have had faith and believed apart from the Holy Spirit. The second truth is that that Holy Spirit indwells you. You can't. There's no other interpretation. Just as Jesus made the blind to see and the paralyzed to walk, proving his deity, you have a love that the world cannot understand. Jesus says we're to love our enemies. We have a joy that sings songs in the darkness. What were Paul and Silas doing when they had been unjustly tried in a kangaroo court, had been taken to the most innermost cell of the prison in Philippi, put in stocks after their backs had been laid open? And what did they do in that cell? Stinking. Their backs laid open. A bloody mess. And what did the other prisoners hear? They heard Paul and Silas singing for joy. We have a peace in the worst of storms that's beyond imagination, knowing that we're in the hand of the Almighty. So what am I saying? We've got to hear the end of this. Folks, don't hide. Don't try to make the supernatural palpable to the unbelieving world. It never will be until God changes their hearts. Don't hide the supernatural of the incarnation. Don't hide it and don't hide from it. Don't dare hide the supernatural aspect of the work and ministry of Jesus. Don't denigrate the supernatural nature of what has happened to you. Don't hide. Don't run from it. We must get back to the supernatural nature of our faith. The supernatural nature of our doctrine. That will be a powerful testimony. That will be our testimony to the secular culture around us. We must get back to the supernatural nature of who we are. If we're going to counter this pervasive secularism that is even part of the atmosphere in which we breathe now in our culture. Folks, the gospel filled with the supernatural has changed individuals, it's changed families, it's changed cities nations 
civilizations. Fairy tales can't do that. Wherever the supernatural gospel has gone, families have been strengthened, schools have been built, children's homes have been built, hospitals have been built. You remove, you remove the supernatural aspects of this gospel to please the world around you, and it will become an anemic story that changes nothing. Ask your secular friends. Ask them if they really want to live in a world without the supernatural, without God. Do you really want to live in the world without Christ of the incarnation? Ask them. You want to live in a world devoid of Christmas, of Christmas? Really? You want to? Well, that was tried just recently, just a few decades ago. It was tried in Nazi Germany. It was tried recently in Marxist Russia, just a few decades ago. It's still being tried in Marxist China. And you know what? You know what? They built walls in those countries not to keep people out. They built walls in those countries to keep people from fleeing the horror that was created by their secularism. Folks, without the incarnation, there would be no Christmas. This table would not be here. This table, this table is not just a celebration of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. It's a celebration of the incarnation. You don't have the cross and you don't have the resurrection apart from the incarnation. This table would not exist without the non-negotiable truths of the incarnation. So on this first Sunday of Advent in 2023... Let's celebrate Christmas. Let's come to the table of the incarnation. Amen.